You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a piece this morning in my inbox. You know, Monday mornings are not particularly great for me anyway, but when I read this article, uh, my heart sank. It came from the desk of Rob Rose, who's the editor of the Financial Mail, fm.co.za, if you want to read this article. Anyway, the headline is as follows, The Most Shameful Moment of Essays Lockdown, and the first paragraph or two go like this. If the blistering indictment delivered by Judge Sunet Potrill against one of the government's most shameful lockdown rules doesn't spark deep introspection in the halls of political power, nothing will. First paragraph. Second paragraph starts like this. In a 54-page ruling in the North Gauteng High Court on Friday, Potrill found that the basic education minister and eight provincial education heads had breached their constitutional duty by freezing the school feeding scheme, which feeds 9 million of South Africa's 20 million children. Rob Rose, the editor of the Financial Mail, is on the line now. And I have to say that when I read the rest of the article... Uh, my heart sank, and your your passion for this subject is palpable, Rob. You sound annoyed. Yeah, uh, afternoon, Lizzie. I mean, totally. I mean, I think it's, it's outrageous, really, that this is happening. It's, these are people who don't have access to the media. They don't have PR teams to kind of go and spin a story. I mean, this is just a flagrant abscondment of responsibilities by government. I mean, they said, the president stood up on TV and said, trust us, you know, we'll look after you during this lockdown do things our way, buy into this, and we'll and we'll make it happen. And they've palpably failed in in a most despicable way with this particular issue, not feeding, not feeding the nine million school kids that they did before the lockdown. What was the reason for them doing it? Because another paragraph says the following a more undignified scenario than starvation of a child is unimaginable. There's the old phrase, you, you can't teach a hungry child. Now, clearly, nine million children are going to be hungry now because uh, there's, again, anecdotal evidence in the article that people cannot feed their children. So why did they do it, and where is the money going if there was money in the first place? Well, I mean, where the money's going is an interesting point. I mean, I don't think that's been explored adequately enough. But certainly what they did is their argument was, well, we have a lockdown, people aren't going to school. So if we provide this this school nutrition program at the actual school premises, well, then we're not going to provide it. But, you know, the fact is that the figures are quite astonishing. It feeds up to this particular program fed 9 million kids, um, which actually was, you know, it ultimately made sure that there was food in the homes of about a fifth of the country. So it was, it's it's a huge, huge vacuum that was created by a government who you know, campaigned upon looking after the most vulnerable and is, you know, right here is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the most vulnerable. Yes, indeed. It's quite astonishing the way that the way that South Africa has approached the pandemic crisis and it was lauded, led by Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, and now it's completely unraveled and we've been exposed as as people that really don't know what we're doing or rather a country that really doesn't know what it's doing. And it's just like many other countries, there are certain countries that have covered themselves in glory and we are not one of them. And it, it's sad because it started out so well. Yeah, Ted, I mean, I think that if you look at some other countries, they've done very badly through, you know, bizarre leadership decisions, through through just having crazy leaders in power. Like I think Bolsonaro in Brazil, Donald Trump in the US, there are a couple of people who clearly have messed things up spectacularly. In this country, we had quite a good president who said the right things, but I think this is where this is where all the countries ills of the last decade or maybe two decades have come home to roost. The fact that we can't implement any policy very well. Um, the fact that the a lot of officials in place who 
shouldn't be there and can't can't actually do their jobs. I mean, that has been profoundly exposed in this crisis. It's one thing for the president to say, we'll do this, we'll look after people. But you then trust that the officials in the various government departments can do that, and that's where the problem happens. I mean, this this school feeding program, I mean, that's an indication, that's something that should never have happened. I mean, how is it that that's at all synchronous with government's mission? It completely isn't. So you'd imagine that if, if this was ever debated or discussed at any senior level, people would say, well, this is obviously what we have to do, but it's implementation which has killed this country for the last so many years, and, and it's, what's, it's what's really caused our lockdown to unravel. One of the titles in your piece is The Silence That Speaks a Thousand Words. Now, I'll turn that round and say a thousand words uh, has turned into a silence because in my 28 years that I lived in South Africa, they were constantly in Darbas and these meetings and these conferences and good words came out of those meetings and conferences and in Darbas, but then the implementation was never there. And it seems that we're repeating the same mistakes of the past. In other words, really good words from the top from Sir Ramaphosa, but then because of this, this disjointed nature of the party that he leads, nothing actually happens because there's so much infighting and I don't understand it. It seems to me that there's no communication. Yeah, I think communication is a real issue. The, the government ministers I've spoken to spoke about communication as a real as a real problem, even within their own National Coronavirus Command Council. Um, but communication with the public at large is, you know, is, is terrible. They're, they're making these decisions like banning alcohol, like banning tobacco, and they're not explaining it. And when uh, the journalists ask for the advisories to be given to them to see on what basis this, these decisions are made, uh, the government refuses to give them out. So that's a that's a massive, that's, that's an intentional transparency gap. Um, and that's completely unjustifiable. If you want the public on your side, it's just basic basic public policy. It's basic um, spin doctrine 101. You, you release the rationale for what you're doing. Um, and, I, and I cannot believe they're doing this. But then, you know, within that, you're right. We've had, we've had you know, decades of talk shops and fantastic resolutions. We've had so many economic plans. We've had an NDP... We've now got the ANC's document last week, which which said pretty good things. But you know, the the real you know, it's not like we've lacked for plans that seem to say really good things. I mean, that's one thing that we could, you know, if if we had a, a rand for every plan that comes out of government, we wouldn't be in the debt crisis we're in. Mm. And now, of course, you're not allowed to go out after nine o'clock at night, which is almost unbelievable. I can un- I can understand it in a dictatorial regime, a non-democratic country. But uh, unfortunately, well, rather fortunately, South Africa is a democracy and a very well-developed democracy. But on the other hand, it's become a rather sad derivative of democracy, given what we've uh, we've seen in the last two, three weeks and the disjointed nature of the approach to the pandemic. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you have a situation where you're banning alcohol. You didn't tell anyone about that until the previous day. And as Tilly Marancela argues in our in the Financial Mail this week, she said, you know, it's not as if there was no reason not to tell anyone on the Thursday, look, we're going to ban it from next Monday, you know. People couldn't buy alcohol anyway. If you're going to stop the hoarding, <clears throat> it would have just given you a few days to prepare for it. But no, they had to do it immediately overnight. And it was just ridiculous when at the same time they're allowing taxis to go back to 100% capacity. That just shows that it's it's not about science, it's not about rationality, it's about politics. And don't forget, they have to leave their windows open, though. I mean, that's one concession. Yeah, the five centimetres <laughs> is going to make a massive difference. 
Yesterday, you say the Sunday Times reported how a team of doctors spent 12 days visiting hospitals in a province in which patients have to sleep on hospital floors awash with blood and human feces. Now, that's very Sunday Times, I have to say. It's part of your your group, but I mean, it is slightly sensationalist. But on the other hand, it could be based on, on fact, and it's very, very disturbing to me. Yeah, I mean, Lindsay, there was a report on the BBC last week um, which encapsulated, you know, they claimed it was part of a five-week investigation and encapsulated much, much of what the local press has done over the past couple of weeks about just how bad the Eastern Cape hospitals are. Um, so, you know, that particular line might be sensationalist, but it's a sensational story when you have a hospital hospitals in a specific province that are like that. The story is inherently sensational, and it's just, it just, you know, again, it's it's a crisis of leadership in that province. And what I found really amazing there is that I think it was a superintendent for the hospitals in that province who said, well, actually, no, things aren't that bad. It's, you know, sure, all provinces are struggling. We know we know worse off than any other province. Um, and he just doesn't understand. Actually, he's not. Eastern Cape is far worse than, say, the Western Cape. To say that is shows you don't know what you're doing. It shows you have no sense of context. Um, and you don't realize the gravity of just how egregious these, these problems are in, in your in your district. And I just think that there's so many people like that working in our in our medical system right now that might have been able to survive, say, a year ago when the stakes weren't as high. But at the moment, ineptitude can't keep being awarded. I mean, that's the problem. I like that. Ineptitude can't keep being rewarded. Your anecdotal evidence obviously can't form part of your articles because your articles at the Financial Mail are based on fact. But I know somebody who has recently been bereaved and has had to have a family member uh, cremated. And that person couldn't find anywhere to get that person cremated. Had to go outside of his and her district and went to a place you know, way away and got a 15-minute slot uh, because the bodies were piling up so much. Are we being force-fed good news about the way that the coronavirus is being handled in South Africa? In other words, the, the death rate. I mean, the death rate still seems relatively low. I mean, it's about 4,500 people. You know, there, some of the studies have looked at essentially the number of deaths that are almost unaccounted for that seem to be likely to be due to to COVID-19, and they've put that figure at about 11,000. Even then, you know, there, there are similar numbers in the UK. I think that at the moment we do seem to have relatively lower death rates. But, you know, having said that, the pandemic has come for us later than the other countries. Perhaps if you look at it three months down the line, you might have a better comparison. You know, there are there are pe- people trying. There are people trying to to improve things, um, but there are also people who just aren't good enough at their jobs, um, and that's that's the that's the problem in in our public health system. Is there are really great people, and there are people who aren't really great, and they're holding up the system. So mm-hmm. a crisis like this exposes that. I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's good to, Lindsay, for one thing, it's good to focus on some of the good stories because otherwise it's unrelentingly negative. So we have to say where we are doing things well. Yeah, quite right. We mustn't be too hard on ourselves because nobody seems to understand. I mean, it's all right very well for Jacinda Ardern to um, to be lauded because she has managed a country of just 5 million people and New Zealand has done very well and South Korea has done very well and Taiwan as well. But on the other hand, they, they don't have the problems of a, a decrepit economy 
in, in South, like South Africa has. Uh, so we have to be hard on ourselves occasionally. And an article in the Sunday Times yesterday said, and this is how you conclude your article, it says, uh, we are realising with horror that our state is not fit to meet the challenge of COVID-19. The real danger is that alongside the mounting socio-economic decline, we have just run out of ideas. This is Mr Jonas, of course. You say that Jonas's article is bracing but excellent. He talks about the countries ruled by populists which have descended into chaos, Brazil, the United States and the Philippines. And you conclude by saying, at its heart, Jonas's article is a plea, yet another one, for Ramaphosa to please just show a little leadership. At this point, even the barest amount will do. Are you saying that Mr Ramaphosa has been um, conspicuous by his absence when it comes to leadership? I think so. <laughs> I mean, if you compare it to the, to any other um, department, it looks like in Corsa Zana, Kamini Zuma, for example, is in control of the alcohol and tobacco bans. It looks like other ministers are taking control. And, you know, Ramaphosa isn't just, isn't just absent. The fact that he's at the head of a government that has failed to explain its, its very, very harsh lockdown um, is 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 a, is a terrible indictment of the way the ANC sees the citizenry. It doesn't have to account to anyone, um, and I think that that's that's a real problem. I mean, the fact that we have a tobacco ban in this country when no other country has it, and yet we haven't had that properly explained to us, um, it's it's a staggering sign of disrespect for your citizenry. And I think that is that by itself is a it's an indictment of of leadership, mm. um, as well as the fact that um, the president hasn't really shown hasn't demonstrated that. He appears on TV every now and again, every couple of weeks. And like you said, he sounds fantastic. He talks about these things we do, but on the ground, there are other ministers doing other things and he seems to have no control over that. Disrespect is the word that I've taken out of the last minute or so of your speech, Rob. We're disrespecting our people or well, they're dissing us. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for that article. If you want to read that article in full, go to fm.co.za. That was Rob Rose who's the editor of the Financial Mail. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.